Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Visible Voice Books in Tremont, Ohio. With a glass of wine or a cup of joe in hand, readers can explore a curated selection of new and secondhand books. Wild Precious Life is also brought to you in part by Mind Fair Books, located inside Oberlin's iconic Ben Franklin Variety Store. With an amazingly broad mix of new and used books, Mind Fair serves academic and general interest readers and collectors alike. Mention Wild Precious Life at the checkout counter and receive an extra 10% off of anything at Mind Fair Books and Ben Franklin. Mind Fair Books, an investment in knowledge, always pays the best interest. I'm Anne Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize-winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. One of my favorite books is Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, in which a boy, and in the recent movie, a whole family, has to deal with the curveballs that life throws their way. Somebody botches an interview, someone flunks his driving test, a teen barfs in public. That's a little bit what it was like trying to get today's episode out the door. First, we had to reschedule. Then my guest, Rachel Simmons, was in a mountain biking accident. We began late. Then our audio kept cutting out. We were cranky. And we had to take deep breaths and start again. Afterwards, my first instinct was to hide all those messy parts. Just buff them out. Nobody needs to catch a glimpse behind the curtain. But then I got to thinking, why do we do that? Why do we try so hard to hide our struggles? Why do we pretend that everything is perfect when we know deep down that it's not? Everyone has hard days. In fact, part of what Rachel and I talk about in this episode is failure and how what we do in the face of doubt and imperfection can actually lead to tremendous possibility and change. Sometimes it's only when things do not go our way that we discover what we truly want. Wild Precious Life is a show about making real connections, not just between me and these cool guests, but between me and you guys. So I'm doing that today. I'm keeping it real. Let's get started. Rachel Simmons is an internationally recognized educator and author of the New York Times bestsellers, Odd Girl Out, The Curse of the Good Girl, and Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls Move Beyond Impossible Standards of Success to Live Healthy, Happy, and Fulfilling Lives. As an executive coach, Rachel guides leaders globally to lead with purpose, courage, and emotional intelligence. As a facilitator, she is renowned for her ability to seamlessly integrate research with authenticity and humor. Rachel serves on the faculty of the Google School for Leaders and was, until recently, the director of the Lewis Leadership Program at Smith College. She is co-founder of the NGO Girls Leadership and has served as an advisor to Oprah Winfrey and Sheryl Sandberg. Rachel appears regularly on Good Morning America as an expert on gender and parenting. Her writing has appeared in many publications, including the New York Times and Washington Post. She lives in Western Massachusetts with her daughter, Rachel Simmons. Welcome to Wild Precious Life. Unlike the vast, vast majority of the guests I chat with, I actually have met you once. You would not remember me. But in the before times, I attended one of your parenting seminars here in Cleveland. I did what I did back then, which is sign up with enthusiasm 
and then aggressively try to bail, right? Like the night comes and like, F it. Why did I say I would go? And then I just like sent texts, try to get out of it. And people are like, no, we're here. So I spent a lot of time at the snack table and then slid in late, fully intending to ignore you and leave early. I like this already. I really like where this is going. Then like bastard people that you are, you tricked me into listening with your like wizardry ninja skills. I laughed at your jokes. I nodded my head. I felt seen. And get this, I bought your book and I read it, woman. Look, I, there's post-its in there and I didn't even I do see, that. I this. see little flags on the pages. Right, those aren't even random. Those are legit. Are you if sure you, you didn't the, just stick those in like this is a prop, right? Here's the thing. I couldn't even find those if I wanted. I don't even usually have post-its. I use like torn Kleenex is usually how I roll. <laughs> I like to prick my finger and underline in blood <laughs> when I don't have what I need. So my thought was if you were able to trick me into lis- like listening, then surely you could trick listeners into listening, right? Because that seems e- easier. Sure. I wish I could trick my daughter into listening. I would trade all my people wizardry skills in exchange for like, you know, 50% listening time at home. But all right. For listeners who didn't end or didn't attend like the Slacker Fest parent that I am, or was, who didn't attend that. Like, tell us who you are and what you're about and tell us your story. Okay, sure. Well, I'm sitting in a red chair in Western Massachusetts. I was supposed to be a lawyer and maybe go into politics, but had a kind of, what do they call it? A quarter life crisis in my 20s where I realized that I had been obsessed with achievement for all the wrong reasons and the product of a lot of aggressive programming by my parents and community. So I took a hard left turn or right turn. I'm not sure which direction one goes when one says, sorry, I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. Withdrew from some very fancy and prestigious experiences that I had been accepted to and decided to write a book about how girls are mean to each other because I couldn't shake the feeling of like, why did this girl in third grade make my friends run away from me after school? I wanted to remake my life at that age. I wanted to do what I cared about, not what other people thought I should do in order to be fancy and high achieving. And so I wrote the book Odd Girl Out, never expecting that it would make me fancy and high achieving. But it did, but in a better way than I was before, because at least I was pursuing what I cared about. And that launched me into a career of both writing about and speaking to girls and then their families and their teachers, but then later co-founding a nonprofit called Girls Leadership, going to work for Smith College, and then eventually in the last few years, discovering the joy of working with adults and becoming a designer of corporate leadership programs, primarily for women and men working in tech. So I have gone all over the map And during that time, I discovered that I was going to be a very late bloomer in the romance department. And so I had a baby on my own when I was 37. I have a nine-year-old daughter who's fantastic and who every day feels like karmic revenge for all of the times I gave speeches before I was a parent. (laughs) I have two rescue dogs and feel really grateful to live in a small town where nobody gives a shit what I do for a living. And that is the end of my story. How is that? (laughs) I love it. That's so funny that they don't in your small town, like what, she's what, I don't care. 
It's really amazing. It's such a great response to the way I grew up, which was that was the only thing people seemed to care about. It's a good antidote. So I'm glad that you mentioned what you did about parents because your most recent book that I read, Enough As She Is, purports to be about how to help daughters move beyond society's impossible standards. And it totally is. It is chock full of tips on that. But I was astonished how much as a 40-something-year-old mom that all of these tips that were for my daughter's fulfillment were actually tips for me. And I learned all sorts of new words to like, to explain my bonkers things, my defensive pessimism, my rumination, my role overload, my pursuit for effortless perfection and catastrophizing. So I had all these new words to describe my crazy in a good way. So I'm glad to know that I am not alone, that it turns out that many, many adults, I guess this is true, right? You've heard from other parents who found therapeutic value in your book. It's the number one thing that people say to me is, I know you wrote this for my daughter, but actually, thanks. I read it. It was for me. So I'm glad to be super common and ordinary there, but that is exactly... Yeah, I didn't mean to make it sound like that. It's more, let's reframe that and say that you are really have your finger on the pulse. Okay. I love it. Instead of average and ordinary, I'm cutting You're just right. You just know stuff. You're prescient. Excellent. Very good. Because I mean, most of us as parents, right? I have three kids. My oldest is in high school. I also have a nine-year-old. He's he's a boy, but I I know the joys of, of the age of nine. And I have a a middle one, like most of us, we just want the best for our kids. We want what's best for them. But I learned about this slippery slope from you where our cheerleading morphs into something like with unintended consequences. So for people who haven't read your book, what's wrong with telling our kids to be amazing at everything they do? Well, I mean, where could I start? (laughs) So I think it's really hard not to over-identify with our kids. Like, let's just start there. It's so hard. Anybody who's like, you know, your kid is not an extension of you. You're different people. It's like, screw you. I don't know. You've clearly never had a kid. Yes, she is an extension of me. I am over-identified with her. Like, how am I not over-identified with the creature that has completely swallowed up my whole life whole and spit it out, you know, in her own image? So I think, first of all, we have to recognize that one of the hardest parts about being a parent is self-regulation, meaning learning to kind of control ourselves and keep our stuff together when our kids trigger us in particular ways. And of course, they're going to trigger us by falling short of whatever fantasy we have for them around excellence. What's wrong with pushing that excellence on them? Well, first of all, it's impossible to be amazing at everything you do. And if you feel like you have to be, in my experience, you walk around just feeling like you're never enough as you are because there's the goalpost is always moving. You always have to be amazing. So you can't ever stop and go, this is enough. So you have a pervasive sense of always feeling that you need to be more. And I also think it makes it hard, as I just mentioned, to be in the moment, to be grateful, to center on what matters, but instead to be chasing the next win. It also makes it hard to enjoy your your wins, right? Like people who feel like they have to be amazing at everything they do rarely take the time to celebrate what's good. They become fetal for 15 days if something bad happens, but they don't even feel it when something good happens because they're just on to the next thing. And then, you know, I'm just going to give you two quick reasons, quickish, why being amazing at everything you do is not so great or telling our kids that is because our kids won't take risks. Our kids won't 
entertain experiences where they might fall short of amazing if they think that what we want for them is constant excellence. So to take my own nine-year-old daughter, I want her to try things where she's not sure what's going to happen. I want her to experience comfort with uncertainty. I want her to experience the joy that comes with, oh my God, I did that and I didn't think I could. There is nothing like the feeling you get when you do something that you thought was going to kill you, but didn't kill you, right? And, and I want that joy, but that comes at a cost. And that cost is being willing to be less than amazing. So yeah, it's a pretty toxic pressure that we put on kids. And, and that is why I think we have to stop. Now, I was so grateful for this because, again, I went to your parenting seminar. I read your book, and then we were canoeing. This was years ago when I when I did this, but we were canoeing with the kids, and we paddled up to a jump rock. The guy who was leading our leading our thing said, hey, we're at the jump rock. And I, I pictured the jump rock, right? A little, little rock you're going to jump on. Instead, we paddled up to this cliff, this cliff of death, where my kids are scurrying out of the boat to just jump off this cliff of death, and I know we're all going to die. And my then probably seven-year-old looks at me and says, hey, mom, aren't you coming? And I knew that I wasn't coming because I was going to grab them and we were going to paddle to safety or hike to safety, but we were not going to jump off the cliffs of death. But they're looking at me and with his little eyes, and I'm remembering this idea that the children are watching me and they're watching me for these cues. You describe it in your book, right? When they were little babies, when they fell down, they looked to you. And if you're like, oh no, then they cried. Or if if you said, oh my goodness, and then they walked again. And so I got out of the boat. I could tell you nothing about the walk up there, except I tried to block it out. I took my son's hand and we jumped off this thing and we didn't yeah, die. Yeah, you did. Right? Yeah, we didn't you did. die. We jumped off the cliffs of death and I've never been back, but that's a different story. But but like we did it. And, and I taught my girls to be brave and to do this thing that scared them. And I've done many things since then because they're watching and risks are good. And I had forgotten that. Do you want to have an air high five? Can we have right? an air high five? Air high five. I'm air high fiving you right now. That's badass. Your kids are lucky. Good job. A plus. Let's dig into another, a couple of ideas from this book that just kind of blew my mind. So like defensive pessimism, pessimism, I can barely say and didn't know what that was, but I totally do it. In your book, you call this defensive pessimism planning to fail. We've all done this, right? Told ourselves, I probably won't get that, or they're going to probably reject it. What is wrong with lowering our expectations a little bit? Another way of putting it is expecting the worst. And we do this as a form of protection, right? It's sort of like if I expect the worst and I get myself ready to fail, then I am protecting myself from the surprise. I'm getting myself ready to survive the pain by just telling myself that that's what's going to happen. So why is that a problem? Well, the reality is, let me first say that it does work for a lot of people. It does actually, people do tell researchers that it makes them feel calmer. But the cost of that calm that you get is that you spend quite a bit of time talking to yourself in this very self-defeating way because you're sitting there saying, no, I probably won't. This piece of writing that I wrote won't be accepted or I probably won't get this job or you know, I probably won't make it over this pile of logs on my mountain bike. And I think we all know that thinking things can affect the way we feel about those things. And we, it can affect the way we feel about ourselves. Our thoughts are not happening in a vacuum. Thoughts affect how we act and how we feel. 
And so there's some evidence that repeatedly telling yourself you're going to fail can lower your confidence and can elevate your anxiety. I have found that the more comfortable I get with failure, the easier, the more I stop expecting the worst. So I'll give you an example. So I submitted probably around 10 op-ed pieces to the New York Times over the course of, let's say, two years. And every time I would send one in, I would be like, it's never going to be accepted. That was why I gave you that as an example. I'm like, it's never going to be accepted. They're going to reject you. And I would tell myself that to make myself feel ready and better for when it happened. Well, what I found after the fourth or fifth time that I sent in an op-ed was I kind of already knew what it felt like to be rejected and it didn't kill me. So I was like, instead of imagining what would happen when I was rejected, I actually would send it in and start picturing it on the Sunday newspaper. I'd be like, wow, what would it be like to have an op-ed published? Because it was as if I didn't need to spend any more time or energy on protecting myself from failure because I knew it wasn't going to kill me. So what am I trying to say? The stronger your failure muscle gets, the less time you have to spend cushioning and preparing and like getting yourself ready for the pain of failure. As a writer, I love failure. I think it makes for an interesting character in a, in a work of fiction. And I loved this idea that failure is a muscle, that practicing failing is a muscle. And, and practicing sharing stuff we failed at We all go out of our way to not tell you about the boyfriend who dumped us or the thing we didn't get because we think somehow that will make us more interesting, seem more... It's way better when people tell you that, in fact, and then they just list off the failure. Wait, I should do that. Let me... Okay. All right. So I graduated from college with no job, no plan, no desire to go to master's, like no nothing, no graduate school. So I applied for two and a half jobs. The half job only kind of lackluster because I really was going to get one of the two. And I didn't get either of them. They were both teaching jobs in inner city schools, which I felt like no one wanted. And so I would get, and I didn't get either of them because I'm sure for reasons that were myriad. But so I moved back home with my parents after college and I applied for a waitressing job to just have some money to go out. So I, and I didn't get the waitressing job. And it was that. That actually was worse for me than the two, like that I just bottomed out, just into a puddle in the, and, and just knew that life would never be good again because I couldn't be a waitress. I had never told my kids that, but my daughter didn't get something recently. And I was rereading your book for this. And I told her that I graduated from college without a job and then couldn't be hired as a waitress. And she's like, what? You? You? You're amazing. And she had this like completely skewed idea of who I am because I had never told her about the times when I failed. And I told her about the job. I answered a job in the newspaper to go work in Central Florida, which turned out to be a job that changed the course of my relationships with kids and with myself as an educator and would never have answered that job if I hadn't been rejected from a waitressing job. And and I told her all about this. And it was this amazing moment where I see my kid and she still sees me But most of us don't talk about failure because we don't want people to judge us. Yeah, but what does it do for your daughter to hear that? Like, oh, wow, my mom has had, even though I I see my mom as amazing, it's okay to not be amazing on your way to being amazing. In fact, not being amazing is a really important part of the journey to being amazing. And that's just something that I feel like a lot of people who are, you know, our age, I'm sure you're in like your late 20s, right? (laughs) 
Okay. Yeah, you, you like too. We're lot, both in our 20s. 100%. 100%. A lot of people our age are like, oh, I mean, it, that's obvious. Like, of course my kid knows that I failed. Or of course, like, my kid knows I'm not perfect. Look at how they rank on me all the time, right? Like, my kids rank on me, so of course they know I'm not perfect. Unfortunately, that's just not the case. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. You know, our kids, often we, in a very well, like, intentioned but misguided effort, expose our kids to narratives about amazing people, you know, films and magazine profiles and like, look at these amazing role models. And unfortunately, those stories often omit the less than amazing moments that these people experienced and had to pass through. We are our children's primary teachers. So whatever relationship we have with failure and how we talk about it, or by the way, don't talk about it, is very likely to be who our children become around failure. And and that's why I love Brene Brown. Love her. She has this audiobook about parenting that I highly recommend. And in it, she says, we can't give our children what we don't have. I like that quote so much. I think I named a whole chapter after it. But the point is, if you haven't dealt with your shit around failure, don't think your kids are just going to like magically wake up and be like, oh, no, I'm cool. I'm good. Like the failure fairy, you know, sprinkled some dust on me and I'm all set. Like, no, they inherit a lot of what we are dealing with or not dealing with. And I think that for a lot of us growing up, speaking of things that we were taught, we had different values growing up. So obedience was a big one, like listening and and following instructions. I think as a girl, I was taught to just like be quiet a lot of the time, be small, certainly not be ambitious or or big or large. And and I don't know, this idea that that sometimes it's okay to quit. I mean, we, we were raised in a generation where there were no quitters. And I, I thought of this when I was reading your book, because my my middle daughter loved to run, so I signed her up for a cross-country team. This was in the before times, maybe two years ago. And she didn't like it. And I said to her, well, we made a commitment to this team, so we're going to stick it out. And she hated it. She hated the practices. The, the meats made her sick to her stomach. But I made her finish the season because we weren't quitters, because that's what I learned that time from my, my parents, and they learned from their parents. And she listened to me. And she finished the season, and she's probably not run again since because she obeyed me. And I thought about that. I'm like, what is this? This is a great example of something I, as a parent, you do the same things that your parents taught you. 
my daughter wanted to know when she could get her ears pierced. And I'm like 16 because that's what my dad told me. But our job is to unlearn some things, right? I have let my children quit any number of things since then because quitting is not failure. Quitting is trusting your gut. You quit something big. I did. I did quit something big. What was that like? Oh, pretty rough. Rough times. In 1998, I won a Rhodes Scholarship, which is a prestigious scholarship that 36 people in the United States win every year and 70-some win from around the world to go and study for free for two to three years at Oxford University. And it's a highly, you know, esteemed and accomplished group of young people who are around 22 to 24 years old. And it has sort of a storied voodoo around it. Like a lot of famous, accomplished people have been Rhodes Scholars. And when I won the Rhodes Scholarship, I received quite a bit of fanfare and attention, in part because I was at the time working in New York City Hall for the mayor. And so there was extra attention given to me. And as I mentioned earlier, achievement was a real heady drug for me. And so the Rhodes in many ways was the absolute pinnacle of that intoxication because it's kind of harder to get a more prestigious award at that age. And so I snagged it. And when I went off to Oxford and went to my, you know, where I lived, my little flat and started going to classes, I suddenly had this terrible sinking feeling. And over time, I grew depressed. I felt very irritable, like I couldn't connect well with other people. I was just miserable. And it eventually dawned on me, even though I was like trying to be this super accomplished Rhodes Scholar, because of course, that's what I knew how to do. What I knew was to work really hard and put my mind to it and be the best, always be the best. And suddenly it was like, you know, it's like trying to (laughs) turn on a lighter with your finger and it's making that noise and no flame is coming out. You're spinning the little wheel and spinning the little wheel and nothing's coming and nothing came. So... Eventually, after, you know, therapy and crying and all of these, you know, agonized decisions, I agonized thinking, I made the decision to leave. And the president of my college called me to tell me I had embarrassed my college. And my father, you know, yelled at me that I was throwing away this incredible opportunity. But I knew that I couldn't make it. And I was really depressed. At the time, there certainly wasn't a lot of conversation about mental health in the way that there is today. But I also had to quit because it was so clear that I was not in the right place. It was a mismatch. And to your point, it's precisely in the mismatch that I was pushed to figure out what do you really want to do? It is often only when we make a mistake that the universe shakes us by our shoulders and forces us to see and do something that we were not willing to see and do before. Totally true. The the experience in my life that have meant the most to me have been absolutely off the the hamster wheel of this is what you're supposed to do. Yes, this is what you're supposed to do. I didn't go to graduate school at 22 because I didn't want to go. And I went again when I was 31 and I had, I had a baby. And so I was so much better as a student. And the times when I didn't follow a prescribed path are the times when I've learned a lot. And I love that you shared your story because you're right. Who says no to that? You have a chapter in your book also about self-compassion and full disclosure. I was going to skip that part because it sounded (laughs) super hippy-dippy and non-scientific. And I was like, she must have needed to fill out the book. So I'm going to skip this part. But then I was listening to it on a walk and I couldn't figure out how to skip ahead. So I did actually listen to that part. 
And it actually is really good stuff because it turns out we're super mean to ourselves. And our daughter, our children are super mean. Like the, the ways that we talk to ourselves are, 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 are kind of terrible. So when you talk yeah. about self-compassion, what do you mean by self-compassion and why is it important? Well, first, I just want to totally validate your reaction your, that it was so woo-woo. That's exactly how I felt. I was like, pass the kombucha. <laughs> really? <laughs> self-compassion? I mean, I grew up in a family that was like, would have completely ridiculed it in the way that I'm doing it now. So, you know, I think there are some people who hear that term and just go, that's not for me. That's for weak people. And I already forgot your question. Was the question like, why is it bad or why do people do it? I guess, like, why is it in the book? Why is self-compassion so necessary? And, and like, how does it help our kids? I, how do you teach them to be self-compassionate? I don't know. All right, well, one question at a time, Missy. Yeah, I asked one you question like 17. At a time. It's a multiple yeah, choice. Listen, I'm, I'm a delicate, <laughs> I have a delicate brain right now. I'm in perimenopause, so I want you to be gentle. Anytime you need to break for a hot flash or a kombucha or I just want a you to know, sidebar, I want to start a menopause registry where I can register for menopause and have my friends buy me the things that I need, like shorty pajamas. I just bought those for myself for my night sweats, a dictionary for word retrieval, a hair loss shampoo. Oh my gosh, look at my bald spot. I'm just so much hair loss. Break. Uh, what is happening here? I have a bald yeah. spot here. And I 17. believe you. Seventeen magazine said that if I parted my hair in the same same way for all those years, I would get a bald spot. I never did, but I hit my forties and had to buy those pajamas you're describing. And the forties are filled with surprises. On the self compassion front, you know, it is so ingrained in so many of us to get motivated by being mean to ourselves. And I think the first thing to know about this is that the research shows that being hard on yourself does not make you more effective. It does not make you more motivated. You can accomplish things when you're beating yourself up. But what also is likely to happen is that you're going to have elevated feelings of anxiety. You might overthink a lot and ruminate because you're kind of worrying about stuff. And what self-compassion does, and this would be a good moment to share that there are over a thousand studies done on self-compassion. So you can hopefully let go of your woo-woo, <laughs> your fear of woo-woo, because there's whole lots of empirical research. But what self-compassion shows is that you can have very high levels of motivation and very high standards for performance and still believe that you are worthy. And so what is self-compassion? It basically means treating yourself with the same kindness that you would treat someone else when they suffer. Right? So when you are feeling inadequate, when you fail, you give yourself the same warmth and kindness and understanding. You are an ally to yourself the way that you'd be an ally to someone else who is suffering too. How we do it with our kids is we really model it. We do it in two ways. So one is when we experience letdowns, when we experience moments of inadequacy, we speak aloud, we process it out loud so our kids hear us processing it. I'll give you a mountain biking example since I'm trying to show my daughter how to mountain bike too. Like if, I, if she sees me fall or kind of clip a tree, I might say, instead of saying to myself, oh, you're such an idiot, I might say, ah, oh, that was kind of scary. But you know, it was the first time I tried it. So at least I took a risk. And I bet a lot of people have had that experience. So I'm doing three things. I'm saying how I feel without judging myself. I am talking to myself the way I would talk to someone I love. 
And I am reminding myself that I'm not the only one who suffers, that other people suffer too and struggle too. And if you can adopt that stance when you're talking about a challenge, a failure, a source of inadequacy in front of your kids, that's huge, 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 huge. I've used that in situations where I would be the kind of person who never asked for help. I don't understand why I self-reliance and independence and perfectionism. I think as a woman, I assumed it was my job to handle things. I'm good at handling things. But since thinking about self-compassion, I've also thought about what does it mean to ask for help? It means you feel like you are worthy of someone else's time and care. Yes, I do think there's an element of that of that worthiness that we have to on some level believe that we are worthy enough to be helped more than we believe that we are a burden to others by asking. In other words, I don't think you ever stop worrying that you're a burden because I don't anyway. I shouldn't say like I don't, so therefore no one else stops. But like, like in other words, what I'm trying to say is I don't think that we ever get to the point where we feel completely a million percent fine about asking for help, but we can at least moderate the, f- the fear. You know, we can moderate the anxiety that comes with it by reminding ourselves that even if we might be putting someone else a little bit out, they want to be put out. Or you really need the help and it's okay to put somebody out briefly and you would do the same for them. And so you sort of talk yourself through the responses, recognizing that it's still going to be complex. Leaning on other people is is actually a sign of strength and not weakness. A hundred percent. But I think as women, especially, we're raised to believe that to lean on someone means I'm admitting I can't do it alone and I am weak. Or I am burdening someone or I am incompetent. And I think men go through a really similar cycle of fear. And I think the pandemic really pushed a lot of us out of our comfort zones in this space and pushed us to be vulnerable in ways that we hadn't been before. I didn't notice the pandemic. You guys had a pandemic up there. There was. I mean, I heard about it. (laughs) I read some stuff on Twitter about it. We are resilient. I do know that human beings pivot. They fight back. They rise above. That's true. And you talk about confidence as coming from you survived a thing. This thing happened and you're okay. Yeah, maybe it didn't go the way that you wanted, but you're okay. And you can get through this. You can get through everything. I've been amazed at how much my kids have been able to do without. As things come back, as things start opening up and, and being back online, we are being, I think, a little bit more discriminating about, you know, we always hated T-ball. We were never any good at it. But we signed up because, like, I like to chat with the parents, which is an okay reason, but maybe let's figure out a different way to chat with the parents and stop signing up for T-ball. Stop making the kids do things they don't like to do. You have a hippy-dippy exercise in your book, which I thought we could do together. I feel like you're going to be up for it. It's an I love exercise, which again— Oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. I was going to skip it because I was putting it in the category of— what did your dad call it? Piffle? Piffle. Did you like that word? That was good. I love that. I love that word. So this is a Buddhist psychologist, Tara Brock, I think you say you credited to. Yeah. And the exercises I love. So can you list some things? Do you want to go back and forth? Is it like a game of Pong or do you want to do a few and I do a few? Like how? You, <laughs> Shout you talk out to Pong. Shout out to Pong. <laughs> I am going, I, so the way that Tara Brock does it is you you say it for 60 seconds. Like as many things as you can think of that you love for 60 seconds and then you go. So maybe what we should do is do like 20 seconds so that listeners aren't just like, please stop. And then you could do 20 seconds if you want. All right. You do 20, I'll do 20, and then we'll do like a little bit of Do you have a timer? No. 
All right, let me get my phone. Hold on. Oh, you're serious. Oh I was going to just... my shoulder hurts so much. No, no, no. I, I had a crash yesterday biking, and oh. I'm so old and stiff. Hold on. Good for you for mountain biking anyway. I don't know, man. Sounds it's like a probably... massage and a hot tub are in your future. Yeah, definitely the hot tub part. Mm-hmm. All right, I got 20 seconds. Are you going to start or am I? Sure. Well, you're going to start because this is your game. All right. I'm going to start in 20 seconds. Ready, go. I love my daughter. I love my dogs. I love my girlfriend. I love to cook. I love to entertain people. I love making cocktails. I love mountain biking. I love exercise. I love Peloton. (laughs) I love reading. I love TikTok. I love when my daughter makes me laugh. Uh, Oh, that was it. Oh, my gosh. That was so so quick. That was really, yeah. But that's like, I mean, imagine doing that for 60 seconds. Are you ready? I'm going to say, I'm going to time you. Oh my Ready, God. I'm so go. nervous. What do you love? I love my kids. I love ice cream. I love chocolate. I really love chocolate. I love my husband. Don't tell him he was after chocolate. I love water. I love the feeling of being underwater. I love swimming laps. I love watching water. I love walking along the beach. I love the crunch of seashells under my feet. I love writing. I All love right, reading. Done. Oh my God. I was so, I, there was so much more. The 60 seconds I, I, would, well, like, make you get into it. I know. It. I was actually just starting to lose my That's what I was um, thinking. momentum. So I'm really glad the, 20, the thing went off. But what a lot of people find when they do this exercise is they're not, they kind of run out of things. And they're like, wait, I don't even know what I love. Oops, the timer went off again. So a lot of people, when they do this exercise, are just like, wait a second, I don't even know what I love. Is that weird? Is that okay? I can't think of anything. So it can cause people to think, for sure. It's a good exercise to do, like a dinner going around the table. I like that idea. Hey, we do a wrap-up. I know you have to go, but let me do a quick wrap-up with you. So we always end with icebreakers because I don't like to begin with them. So do a quick multiple choice for me. Just pick one. Dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Pass. I'm not sure. It's really hard, but okay, probably beach. Cake or pie? Cake. Early bird or night owl? Early. Are you a risk taker or the person who knows where the band-aids are? Risk taker. These are short answer, but they're brief. What's one of your go-to karaoke songs? Hit Me With Your Best Shot by Pat Benatar. Nice, nice. What's one of your favorite books or movies? I love the movie Tootsie with Dustin Hoffman. Love it. So love good, that Bill movie Murray. So much. It's oh, epic. It's an so epic good. film. Oh, yeah. Okay. Pause for Tootsie. Okay. Favorite ice cream? Chocolate chip. I'm really boring. Though I do like pistachio from Van Leeuwen ice cream in New York. If we were to take a picture of you doing something that you love, you're really happy, what would we see you doing? Mountain biking. Even though you've hurt your shoulder. Yeah, I mean, but that's the essence, right? I mean, you want, you want to see my wounds? I do. Here, Show I'll me. Just, I had a spill yesterday. You can this is a podcast, but we're going to imagine it. The things that we love are also often the things that can be really hard. I love weightlifting and it kicks my ass every time I do it. And I have a bum knee and I'm in my 40s and I don't know how much longer I can do it, but I love it. Let me see I the guns. Lift, Let me see right? the guns. Right. Well, I'm, actually, my yeah. thighs are better, but like this one. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> nice pipes. Thanks. All right, Rachel Simmons, I'm going to do my exit, which is thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for writing an educational family and relationships book that I actually read. I think we sometimes get this silly idea that once our kids are school-aged and out of diapers and in the world, that the hard work of parenting them and raising ourselves is done. And it's not. What I learned from your book is that I have a lot to learn about how to raise my kids and how to raise myself. 
Folks, the book is Enough As She Is, How to Help Girls, and um, I would add all of us, move beyond impossible standards of success to live healthy, happy, and fulfilling lives. It's a book that's helped me redefine what success and happiness should look like for my kids and for me. You can pick this title up at any independent bookstore near you. For folks here on the west side of Cleveland, that might be the bookshop in Lakewood or Visible Voice Books in Tremont. To everyone listening, we are wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Please remember, you are enough just as you are. Until next time, be good to yourself and be good to one another. And we'll see you again on this wild, precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrub and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.